And so, you know, I think to entrepreneurs, I say, you know, sure, we all want to be profitable. We all want to have a successful exit. But at the same time, the best way to get to that successful exit is to find the thing that you are so passionate about that it doesn't feel like work. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, we are very fortunate to be chatting with April Anthony, currently the founder of Vital Caring, which is her fourth home healthcare company. April is a home healthcare and technology entrepreneur with three exits under her belt. She started her career as an accountant, but at the age of 25, with the initial goal of being a stay-at-home mom, April talked herself and her husband into buying one of her clients, which was a failing home healthcare company. The next 25 years is a remarkable story of perseverance and success, where April built and sold three home healthcare businesses for more than $1.5 billion. April's superpower comes from her early days as an accountant and her unwavering perseverance to follow her purpose, which allowed her to flip the home healthcare industry on its head. In our discussion, April shares how finding your purpose will drive your business success, why you should do due diligence on your buyer, and when to sell pieces of your business while rolling equity to take a second, third, and fourth bite of the apple. I hope you enjoy my conversation with April Anthony. Hello, everyone. I'd like to take a minute to highlight this week's sponsor, Doran Mayhew, a top 60 national accounting, tax, and M&A advisory firm who we frequently recommend to conduct sell-side QOV or quality of earnings for our clients. In 2023, there are a lot of things changing in the world of M&A, economic headwinds, failed banks, and big bankruptcies. But with the credibility of a sell-side QOV from a top firm like Dorn Mayhew, more buyers will look at your deal, buyer diligence will run faster, and your investment banker will be armed with clean financial data to be able to address any buyer questions with well-conceived responses. What this really means is you're more likely to maximize your exit. Dorn Mayhew is one of Forbes' best tax and accounting firms in the United States. Check out their quality of earnings offerings and everything else they can help you with at Doran.com. That's D-O-E-R-E-N.com. We'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. April, thank you so much for being here. Very excited to have this talk with you. Your background is amazing. I know, you know, one of our best, best, most downloaded episodes with Shannon Wilburn. And she recommended that we talk to you. And then you and I, I got to hear your whole story. I am thrilled that you agreed to be here uh, so much so that I don't know if he's might even be a neighbor of yours, but I asked Mark Cuban to kind of take the next time slot because you were so much more important. So thank you for being here. Well, if the Mavericks don't uh, make the playoffs, I'll be more than Mark Cuban for a whole season. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I love it. So I think it's just a natural place to start is you're at, Price Waterhouse Coopers, right? And maybe you could talk to us about the early beginnings, that foundation that you created that led to the decision to purchase your first business. Yeah, I, uh, I I'm an accountant by training. Uh, did a few years at Price Waterhouse, and after my uh, first busy season as a newlywed, my uh, husband said, "Hey, uh, you know, maybe this isn't the best career path." And I said, "Well, you're right. I, I really was kind of thinking my career path was to become a stay-at-home mom." And, we agreed that was sort of where we were headed. I said, I just need a job. I don't need a career. I just need a job for a couple of years so we can save some money and start a family. And 
So that all seemed like a, a great plan. And I left Pricewaterhouse and through an odd set of circumstances, I ended up stumbling into this uh, job of becoming a controller for a home health care company. And my first assignment once I get there is to do the financials. And, uh, and, and that, in those days, home health was what you called cost reimbursed. Uh, and it meant that every year Medicare, as the primary payer, would sort of set a limit. And they would say, as long as you spend less than this maximum limit, we'll pay you what you spent. But if you spend over the maximum limit, we won't reimburse you beyond that limit level. Well, sure enough, this company had four of these Medicare provider numbers, and one of the four was well over the limit. And being a good accountant, I did a budget for the rest of the year and discovered that it was actually going to get worse before it got better. Uh, and so I went to the owner and I said, hey, listen, you have a problem. What would you like to do? And he said, let's sell it. And I thought, okay, but who buys money losing cost reimbursed businesses? I'm not sure I'll be successful at that. So sure enough, I started uh, making phone calls, trying to find an interested party, had a few conversations, but eventually they all came to the same conclusion of having no interest. And so I go back a couple weeks later to report my activity. And, uh, and about halfway through this conversation, my deeply competitive gene comes out in me because I just really don't like to fail at anything. I, I'm just a very, very competitive person. And I'm thinking, here's my first big assignment. And I'm going to have to admit that I failed at this first job. And so with zero forethought or planning, which is unusual for an accountant, I say these words, what if I just buy the agency? And he said, sold. And I said, well, wait a minute, buy, that probably wasn't the right word. But what I really meant is, why don't you just give it to me? Because you see, uh, you've got enough capacity in these other three. You could absorb all your costs if you just had those three. If you just didn't have this one, you would be in the best possible position. So just give it to me with the losses that it has today. And again, he said, sold. And I said, uh, wait a minute, my new husband might have an opinion <laughs> about this topic. So I rushed home that evening and I, I was trying to figure out how I was going to have a better sales pitch. I said to my husband, honey, good news. We're going to buy a home health agency. Uh, the time he said, uh, well, with what? And I said, well, that's the better news. They're just going to give it to us. And as the story unfolded, he eventually uh, listened and said, hey, one question, what do you know about home health care? Oh, gosh, I don't know anything about home health care, but it doesn't seem that hard. <laughs> and with those auspicious words, I returned. And at the age of 25, with then yeah. 58 days of experience in the home health care industry, I became the owner and CEO of a money-losing cost reimbursed business. So my entry into entrepreneurship was not necessarily a planned one. I love the phrase, God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. And I think for me, <laughs> that uh, that ended up being what it was really all about. Stumbled my way into home health care, but then really found something that now for the last 31 years has been a business that I have just uh, loved and felt passionate about and felt called to for all these last 31 years. Wow, what what a beginning, April. That's fantastic. I, I want to step back just a little bit because it sounded like your first assignment was to go find a buyer for, you know, a failing business, right? That's hard enough for us professionals to go out <laughs> and find buyers for really quality companies, right? So that did not seem like a winning a situation, but you come back and turn that into the ultimate negotiation of, you know, what about me? Oh, wait, wait about, what about me? Let me go ask. And you end up, you know, with a, a fantastic opportunity, right? And you obviously had the appetite for risk. So it's a great kind of entrepreneurial beginning. But again, like what I really, really, really like 
is that you have the accounting background, right? You know what you're looking at when you're looking at these financial statements and seeing where this business could go and potentially what the problems are. And maybe you have an idea of what you're going to do to fix that, right? And I think as entrepreneurs, we tend to be more on the sales side, the visionary, the ones that is going to try to create product market fit and the unit economics, the way the business runs tends to be slightly secondary. So I love we're coming in on this. All right. So now you own this business and you know, you know what are the next moves? Well, so from there, my first real thought was, okay, I don't know anything about home health care. I don't know exactly how to run this business, but I know for certain I don't have any money. And so losing money is definitely not going to be something that I am uh, capable of doing. And so first thing I did was go in and lay off uh, all the employees that were in the back office that weren't licensed employees. So I kept the nurses and the therapists, but I became kind of the billing clerk and the medical records clerk. And I did the accounting and I was the hiring manager and I was uh, kind of in charge of everything, but I was, uh, I was kind of a one man show when it came to all of those administrative functions. But I was also a one man show when it came to sales and marketing, because I also knew one of the keys to success was going to be growth, that we needed to uh, create an environment where we could really grow quickly. And so I, I developed my uh, my elevator pitch, you know, a couple of minutes, I thought, okay, I, I know just enough, I can go out into the market and start selling. So I got my little two minute elevator pitch together. And I went out and started calling on doctors and hospitals, discharge planners and trying to get some business. And I was sort of facing rejection after rejection after rejection when finally I, I got uh, behind the window. You know, if you ever go into your doctor's office, there's always that little glass window. And as a salesperson, <laughs> your objective is, man, I just want to get on the other side of that window because then I've got a chance to close the deal. So sure enough, for the first time I get invited into the back of the office as a salesperson, I think I'm about to make my first sale. About that time, the physician comes walking down the, the hallway and he notices my name with home health on it. And he says, home health, what, what do you all do when a patient has a CHF? For the life of me, I had no idea what CHF <laughs> even was, let alone what we did for it. And I stumbled and stammered and I said, hey, I could bring my nurse back. And then he asked about COPD. And again, I was clueless uh, about the diagnoses or what we did for it. And so eventually he dismissed me. And uh, as uh, anticipated, I walked away and handed with no referral. And it was kind of at that moment when I knew uh, my elevator pitch wasn't going to get the job done. I, I needed a different approach. And so I went back to my office that afternoon and I started calling our nurses and our therapists. And for the next couple of weeks, I scheduled ride-alongs. I said, hey, can I just come with you? Will you, you know, tell me what does this patient have? What does that mean? What are we going to do about it? What do we hope will happen as a result of our care? You know, what will it look like uh, when our care is completed? What will they be able to do? And if I could just sort of observe, maybe I could have some stories to tell the next time I go out marketing. And sure enough, that was, uh, that was sort of... Uh, what, what I thought was going to be a couple weeks of building a better sales pitch turned into really probably the most transformative two-week period in my adult life because it was, it was those two weeks where all of a sudden, for the first time, I got to see what home care was all about. I got to see patients in their home. I got to see all the challenges they face. I got to see the way our nurses in, with such compassion come in and care for them. And, and, and I got to observe what it was all about. But by the time I would sort of get to the afternoons of those uh, ride-along days, my head would be sort of swimming with clinical jargon. And I would finally kind of say, hey, I can't take any more. Don't, don't tell me any more uh, clinical diagnoses or information. Just tell me about you. How is it that you came to be at this place? And 
after a few days and a, a few different people, I came to notice that everybody's stories were really similar. You know, something like I, I knew I wanted to be in the clinical field from the time I was a young person, but I went and got my uh, my degree or my certifications and first job was in the hospital. And 12-hour shift after 12-hour shift after 12-hour shift, I, I finally just felt like there was just nothing left for me to give. And so I left the hospital. I went to the nursing home and I got, felt like that was just worse. And and now I'm sort of here in home health care and I'm kind of hoping it won't be awful. <laughs> and I remember thinking oh, to wow. my then 25-year-old self, okay, I don't know if I could be any good at this, but surely I could be not awful. What if I could create a work environment that was not awful. What if I could create one that was good? What What if I could create one that was great? What if I could become the best place to work in healthcare? Gosh, if I could do that, I think I've watched these people for the last few weeks. Every day, they just give and give and give of themselves. If I could create an environment that poured back into them and uh, and kept them feeling renewed and replenished, and they'll go out every day and give of themselves, and I think we'll do some pretty amazing things from a care perspective, and, and people will take notice. And so really those two weeks not only gave me a passion for our patients and for what we were able to do for them, but I think for me, even more so, it gave me a passion for how do we take care of the caregivers? How do we make sure that we're the kind of company that really creates something distinctive and a place that's unique that lets those people really live up to the calling that they felt in the first place that caused them to enter the healthcare field. And so that's uh, that's sort of the, the foundation upon which the last 31 years of my time in healthcare has been built is around this idea of being the best place to work and how can I create that so that we can be not only the best place to work, but in turn, the, the company to receive the best care from. And so that's really you know, kind of the, the, the underpinning strategy of everything <laughs> that I've tried to do in my career. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, we, you let the secret sauce out right at the beginning here. And it's like you, an accountant, a 25 year old accountant was able to figure this out in two week ride alongs to change healthcare, right? It, that is, it's, it's very admirable. And I'm wondering why that, that perspective was not so obvious before, but that's fantastic. So April, you build this company now to a point where you're still very young and you go to sell the business. Can you talk to me about the growth and then that maybe opportunity to sell? How did that land on you? Yeah, you may you may have heard the the phrase "accidental entrepreneur." That that certainly yeah. uh, sort of falls into my uh, my realm. I didn't really make a grand plan for this business and just sort of fell in my lap. And uh, and sort of the same is true of the first exit. It wasn't like I said, "Okay, well now I've built this up." We were, you know, about thirty five million dollars in revenue. Uh, I bought the business in ninety two. Nineteen ninety six comes along. We we're run rating at about thirty five million dollars revenue. Still a cost reimbursed business, so really no profits yep. there. We were able to. Cover expenses and you know pay ourselves a salary and those things, but there was no profitability. And phone rang, and it was somebody who said, "Hey, we understand that you operate a business that that operates below the Medicare cost caps." And in those days, in the uh, in the mid '90s, kind of the philosophy of home health care was spend every available dollar. Like if they give you a maximum cap of a dollar, spend ninety nine cents. 
But I was an accountant by training and I had started this business where we were digging out of a deep hole. And so my first year in the business was spent trying to figure out how I could operate on 50 cents <laughs> so that I could dig out of the 50 cent hole we had started in and get back to the dollar by the end of the year. And so I had always kind of come up with a, an efficient operating model because I had to out of necessity. But when we got to the next cost reporting year and kind of had a fresh start, I was still struggling with, well, I don't want to just spend money to spend it. I mean, if our people, are happy, our patients are happy, our care is of high quality. I'm not going to just waste money simply because I can. I'm going to try to do the right thing. Uh, and so I always operated about 25% below the cost cap. So sure enough, this company calls and they said, hey, we've, we've sort of heard in the marketplace that this is the way you operate and we'd like to buy your business and we'll pay you a 5X multiple on that cushion. Well, our cushion huh. at the time was about $8 million below mm -hmm. the cost cap. So that was $40 million. I wasn't even 30 years old yet. And so I, uh, I didn't ask very many questions. I just jumped at that opportunity. And, and mm -hmm. uh, as it turned out, that was a, a poor decision. You know, you never can, uh, never can, you know, second guess necessarily a transaction you were happy with on the day that you did it. But it didn't take too many days uh, after the transaction to realize I probably had not picked the right partners. I hadn't asked nearly enough questions. As fortune would have it, about 11 months later, I had stayed on in a, in a role as a regional vice president. And about 11 months later, I actually got uh, terminated from that position because we were really not seeing eye to eye on the way to operate the business. And so I was sort of in this funk thinking, okay, I've, I've found this thing that I love. I've built this business that was really successful. We had a great reputation. We were growing rapidly. And now here I am on the outside looking in. And as is often the case with transactions like that, I had a non-compete. And so I was sort of sitting in an idle place trying to figure out exactly where to go. And it wasn't too long into that. Uh, lo and behold, the, uh, the OIG and the FBI ended up raiding that company, came in, and really the company ended up being caught doing some things that were inappropriate, which was frankly why I got fired in the first place is I wouldn't do some of the things they were asking us to do. And, and it turned out what I thought was maybe the darkest day of my career, the day that I got fired turned out to be the happiest day of my career because it was mm -hmm. about seven months later when all of this went down and I was long gone and, and didn't have any part of any of that. So I never got drug into all of those conversations. So, you know, that gave me the opportunity, though, when that happened, the company filed bankruptcy and they closed down their entire Texas operations. And when they did, all of my non-competes uh, immediately went away because they were no longer operating in Texas. And that gave me the opportunity to go start my next home care business, which I did about 45 days after their bankruptcy filing. <laughs> I was able to start back in the home health care space and began here in Dallas with a single location. Uh, and ultimately, that business grew over the next 20 plus years into uh, an organization, Encompass Home Health and Hospice, that uh, by the time I left was about $1.2 in revenue and uh -huh. uh, had 325 locations spread around 31 states serving home health and hospice patients to the tune of about 50,000 patients per day. And so a pretty amazing journey that got started on that rebound from that first transaction. April, thank you for sharing all of that. So I'd love to go back for a second because, you know, when you talk about how they valued your company, which was pretty clear, right? You had that $8 million cushion, which if you had maxed out your ability to charge for your service, right, that you could have said $8 million of profitability or, or something close to that. Right. And so they're saying, okay, it's five times that. But that to most entrepreneurs would say, wow, this is the win of my lifetime. 
was it not structured properly where you know it was more earnout related and and then you get fired i would have thought you'd have a structure that made you very comfortable financially was that the case the transaction was uh, was half and half half equity and half cash up front uh, so i got got 20 of that in cash uh, but from that i had to pay taxes and and all of the rest and then i had 20 million in stock in the company and that stock turned into nothing <laughs> it turned into, yeah, it turned yeah. into uh, being worth nothing at the end and so you know the the transaction certainly um, it, it was still even at the 20 million dollar valuation uh, that was the cash portion. It was still a, a, a big transaction. Certainly, again, I wasn't 30 years old yet, so it was still a big number, but it wasn't quite the number that we had initially anticipated. You yeah. know, and for me, though, you know, I think I had my uh, I had two children at that point in time. I now have three, but uh, I, I had had my two children during the time from the first acquisition to the first sale. Um, you know, and I think for me, it was just more than that. I mean, I, I, I've been so fortunate and so blessed to make you know, a lot of money over the course of my careers, but, but I've never done it to make money. I've always done yeah, it because yeah, I yeah. love it. And I think for me, when the opportunity to get back into it, it really wasn't a, you know, gosh, I made a lot of money. I don't have to do this anymore. It was the opportunity to, to take those proceeds and, and re-engage in something that I was passionate about that I love doing. And I think so much of the success that I can look back on came for doing things for the right reason, not not just yep. for the economic returns. Now, don't don't mishear me. I, I love the economic returns. I'm not saying yep. I don't, um, yep. but they're not the sole reason that I enter into those transactions or, or make those decisions. I, yeah, I absolutely hear you, right? You built something very special from the ashes and there's some legacy behind that. And now, you know, it's gone, right? You, you handed it over to the wrong people. So, you know, financially you didn't hit the, what, what you deserved. And then the legacy is gone. So you're kind of picking up the pieces. So I absolutely understand that. But in that transaction, is there any advice that you would give, right? I wasn't there as that was being negotiated. But one of the things that we really try to impress upon our founders is you're doing due diligence on a buyer as much as they are doing due diligence on you. Is that something that you wished you'd, you'd dug more into or really was there kind of character uh, hidden and you weren't going to discover um, uh, no, where they I, ultimately I, I think up. I definitely could have discovered it uh, had I had more experience, had I had better advisors yeah. or any advisors for that matter, or yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and had done, done my homework more. I think I was I was so young and so green and uh, so inexperienced that I, I sort of took everything at face value. And I yeah. think it is absolutely true when you're selling a business, um, you have to be as discerning about the buyer as they are being about you, uh, particularly if it's a business where you feel like you've got this connection. I mean, all of us, n no person builds their business alone. They build it with a team around them of people who work alongside them, who sacrifice, who give, who look for ways to, to make it better than it could be. None of us could do it alone. And so to me, every time I've ever sold a business, I've wanted to feel like I made a good choice about who I sold it to. And I think that first mm -hmm. go around, I was uh, I was young and naive and inexperienced and didn't know what I was doing. But in my subsequent transactions, uh, you only have to burn me once <laughs> for me to learn that uh, that fire is hot. Uh, and so it, it created this foundation that then gave me the opportunity in subsequent transactions to make sure we felt like we were doing our best to take care of our people. Because it's uh, it's never the entrepreneur is rarely ever working alone. It's it's almost always a team around you that's helping you get the job done and helping you build the business. 
Uh, okay, so that great points. I think what I would like to share is that when you have the right advisors, the advisors that really know the buyers from your industry, they know the history of these buyers, right? So they know what you're getting into. And I think a lot of times we, we've sold a business where a founder has said to us, you know, I, not only do I want the right buyer, I want my name to still be on the building. There cannot be a change in the brand legacy is so important to me. And so the right advisors know which buyers are going to adhere to that. They know which buyers are going to try to change the price at the last minute, and they won't allow those buyers <laughs> in, or they will take those buyers less seriously. So we really recommend getting the best possible you know, investment bankers on your team who really know the buyers and have transacted with them before to avoid those kind of situations. I, I really do want to get into like the big kind of grand slams that you're hitting, but a lot of uh, structures are equity based, right? So you got 50% up front, 50% is rolled in equity. And so you really are betting on this team. And that must, it must have been a terrible feeling when they toss you out after 11 months. In hindsight, very lucky uh, personally and professionally, but not necessarily financially. Any recommendations there when you're thinking about investing your earned money back into a company? Yeah, you know, I've I've uh, had a lot of success taking multiple bites uh, at the apple, and so yeah. I love reinvesting. I mm -hmm. think it's it's a great way to create, to take some risk off the table, to create lifestyle uh, opportunities and opportunities for philanthropy and other things that are of interest to you through interim transactions. But I also love continuing to bet on myself, and so when you do find those right partners. Um, you really have to understand, you know, kind of what you're getting into. And in my case, you know, more times than not, the transactions that I ended up doing were with private equity partners where I was still yep. going to really have control over the business and the day-to-day -day operations of the business. They certainly had voting controls over the exit decisions and the, and the financing decisions in many cases, but I wasn't going to have to fight about what the business was going to be about, uh, or at least didn't anticipate that I would. And I I think that, you know, if you want to roll over equity, that's a really great structure. When you roll over equity into a strategic entity where you're just going to become a smaller part of something, I think no matter, no matter what is said, no matter what the intent at the time is, I just think it's virtually impossible not to ultimately find yourself swallowed up by that bigger entity. And so I think as a seller, you have to know when you choose a strategic buyer as the next step in your journey, that ultimately, no matter what they say, you are likely giving up potentially everything about yeah. what really matters to you about that business. And you've got to be okay with that. And if you're not, my advice to you would be choose private equity, you know, choose somebody where at least you're going to continue to be the leader of that business, mm -hmm. where at least you're going to have the opportunity to speak into it. As long as you can perform, there's no guarantee you get to stay if you can't perform, but if you can continue to perform, you're going to get to continue to be the leader of that business and, and drive it and direct it the way that you want to. So I, I think it's really important when you're rolling over equity to a strategic buyer, it's almost impossible to know enough about that buyer <laughs> to fully understand the implications on the other side. So you've got to really get yourself to a place mentally to feel like, you know, even if it doesn't go anything like they say, I, I'm, I'm going to be okay with this. Yes. And you, you got to yeah, kind of know at that money, you're at that point, you're playing with house money. Yep. And if it doesn't play out, you've kind of made the decision that you're okay with that. Obviously, you try to make right decisions, you try to assume, you know, what might happen, 
But in my mind, I always sort of write it off as house money <laughs> at that point in time. And if I walk away, I still walked away with a good return on my in- initial investment. That's that's perfect advice. We give that as well, right? If if you're not in full control of the levers of the growth and direction of the company operationally, everything that is being kind of dangled in front of you, you need to consider as, as you say, house money, and you need to be comfortable with the upfront piece as the only thing that you may see. Right, because you you lose control, you're no longer betting on yourself, and there's so many different personalities and inner workings going on that you have no idea about. So I love that. I love that advice. So you're building this business initially via acquisition, right? As opposed to organically, where your business is is growing itself, you're going out and buying companies because you're seeing this this opportunity to pick them up for pennies on the dollar, which is fantastic, right? I think that leads back to your accounting background, really being able to understand financial statements, be able to relate to people and create kind of win-win situations. So you're getting a certain size by doing that. The economy turns and now you're saying, okay, we're going back to organic growth. We're going to grow the base of this business, which is fantastic. Then you're saying, okay, there's opportunities to leverage technology. Can you talk, talk to me about that? Yeah, so exactly. So sort of 98 to 2000, we're, we're building the business through acquisitions, but at a really low multiple and really effective cost, not having to put much capital back in. And then finally, prices begin to sort of go back up. And uh, and I think, okay, well, we're, we'll refocus our effort on organic growth, which is a more cost-effective way to grow. And things are going pretty good on that front until all of a sudden I, I sort of decided to take a little bit of a detour. I, I decided that as we moved into this sort of new period, sort of 2000 was a big kind of a transformational period in the way Medicare reimbursed home health agencies. And so there was this new opportunity. We weren't going to be cost reimbursed anymore. We're actually going to have the ability to make a profit. And so being uh, being somebody who's really process oriented, I immediately went to, okay, we need then better, more effective technology to help us manage this uh, business more effectively. I think at the time we maybe had 10 locations spread around Texas. And I was seeing even with just 10 locations, how hard it was to keep everybody on the same, you know, same method same approach to doing things. So I I go out and I start looking for technology solutions and I kind of walk away from the exhaustive search feeling like there really aren't any good solutions out there that uh, because the industry for so long had been built on this idea of cost reimbursement, efficiency had just never really been the mindset of a home health Mm -hmm. operator. But that was very much my mindset for this future period, as well as sort of how I had gotten to the place I'd gotten to begin with. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to have to build this. Well, I I knew about as much about technology as I knew about home health (laughs) when I got into the business, but I knew what I wanted. I knew what I thought we needed. And I was super fortunate because early on, I found a technology partner who could come in and uh, take my yellow pads and my scratchings of what I thought it needed to do and turn it into solutions. And so we began in uh, the fall of 1999, building this technology solution that it was going to be the electronic medical record system and really the enterprise management solution for our whole organization. And by the time we got to about 2001, we had spent my whole budget that I had sort of set aside. I thought, okay, I can do this for a million and a half dollars. Well, I had spent about two and a half million dollars in the first 18 months, and there was no light at the end of the tunnel that that spending was going to uh, decrease. As a matter of fact, every time you did one thing, you're like, oh, that's cool. Could we make it do this also? Well, that's cool. Could we make it do this also? And if you've ever been in technology <laughs> development, you uh, you know, it's kind of like a Chinese buffet. There's an endless opportunity of things that you can make 
make it do that you want it to do. And so I thought, okay, this is a bad idea. I'm, I'm finally in the home health space and uh, in an era when I'm going to be able to make a profit in home health care. But now I'm taking all of my profits and I'm pouring them down this technology hole. <laughs> this seems like a bad outcome. And so 2001, I decided I would spin the technology division out of the operating company and that I would start trying to build technology not only for ourselves, but for the industry at large. And so I uh, began a company called Homecare Homebase at the same time that we were building and growing in Compass, uh, began Homecare Homebase in the fall of 2001. And uh, and as, uh, as it would turn out, I ended up putting every dollar that I had made from that first transaction back in mostly to the technology company. Um, I remember in 2006, my husband said, at what point do we get to stop putting good money after bad? (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. you have now taken all of the uh, financial stability we had created and poured it into this technology solution. When do we get to stop? And I said, well, all I can tell you is that if we stop now, we will have absolutely lost everything. But if yeah. we keep going, <laughs> there's a chance yeah. that we'll turn the corner. And uh, as, as you can already tell, Mark's a pretty trusting guy. He let me stumble yeah. into this home care business with no knowledge. And he just kind of kept nodding his head. I think we you know, remortgaged our home that we had paid off and took the proceeds and put them down this, uh, this endless tunnel of technology spending. But as fortune would have it, uh, we were able to turn the corner in about 2007, sort of the first year that we actually broke even. So after six years wow. of trudging along, making money, losing, I mean, losing money, pouring money into the solution, finally 2007 comes along. And for the first year, we're cash flow positive. And then from 2007 on, the company just, uh, you know, rocketed from a, a growth and profitability perspective. By the time we got to 2011, we brought in our first set of private equity investors. Mm-hmm. When I began the building, I, I had I had written a number on a piece of paper. If I could make it worth $60 million, I was going to be happy. And in 2011, the business was valued at $150 million from an enterprise wow. value perspective. We sold 40% of it in 2011 to a private equity partner. And by 2013, the business had grown to be worth $625 million in two, two and a half, not even quite two and a half years later. And so it was just an incredible run. So sold another chunk of the business, another 40% of the business in 2013 at that $625 billion million valuation. And then ultimately that remaining 20%, we sold down in a multiplicity of chunks between 2016 and 2020. Last, last sale was actually December of 2019. And I think the final valuation for our, for our last chunk in 2019 was $2.1 billion, um, of enterprise value. Amazing. So the business you know, took off, really became the industry standard for the home health and hospice industry. Um, yep. And we had all of our biggest competitors from our operating business were our biggest customers for our technology business. So really a, an interesting sort of uh, set of circumstances, but it, it kind of gets back to that as entrepreneurs, I feel like, you know, you, you either really believe in what you're doing or you don't. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, people have asked me before, like, well, you don't really have any like failures, like all these businesses that you started actually, you know, ended up being successful. And I said, well, the only reason they weren't failures is because I refused to stop <laughs> because yeah. there are times when each one of them 
probably a wiser person would have said, this is silly, quit doing this, stop pouring this good money after bad. But something within me, just the competitive gene or whatever it is, just kept saying, no, I believe it. I believe it's going to turn. I believe it's going to turn. And, you know, thankfully for me, that uh, that proved to be the truth. But, you know, I think, think the only way you guarantee failure is to stop trying. <laughs> and so for me, I was able just to, uh, to kind of defy the odds and outlast the losses and find yeah. my way to profitability eventually over time. And uh, that, that's the success of home care home base is outlasting the uh, losses. <laughs> April, uh, the, uh, there, there is so much there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'll tell this little story. I was just having a meal with uh, Mike Vanderjag, and he is the most accurate kicker in the NFL, in NFL history. And he was telling a similar story. And there's so many parallels for sports and business. And I think he had said that he was cut by 12 teams before he even got to the NFL. And he just refused to stop and just kept getting better and learning and honing his, his trade to the point where he became the best ever, right? And you hear that story in business over and over and over. And it's, it's that persistence that entrepreneurs have that may be slightly irrational, but they, many of them will attribute that to their success. So thank you for sharing that. I want to step back because I think the opportunity for you to sell 40% of the business to a private equity firm. So you have 60% of your equity is still in the business and they are likely injecting cash into the business for growth. They want to see growth, right? And their plan is how do we you know, have a three or four X on our investment. Can right. you describe it like that, that particular partner, what that structure looked like and what made you to make that decision? Yeah. So for, for us, actually, we were, we had gotten to a pretty healthy place from a cash flow perspective. We were still making significant investments in the technology, but we were now making them out of free cash flow instead of out of added new capital. And so really when we did the 40% transaction in 2011, it, it was a take risk off the table for us. And so it was literally, you know, buying 40% of our interest uh, and, and letting us diversify our personal portfolio away from having so much risk. And so the company itself, didn't really need more capital at that point. It was we were refueling and refunding the, the need for ongoing development through the free cash flow. So we mm -hmm. took that money off the table, that 40% money, and we were able to use that to really kind of be the, I would say that was kind of the first of really the big transactions where all of a sudden, you know, we created significant liquidity. We'd had a couple other smaller liquidity transactions along the way in the operating business from the 1998 act or startup of that business. But this was kind of the first really big deal yep. that we were able to close. And that, that changed, you know, the way our family lived, it changed the level of financial flexibility we had. It changed the way we supported charities that we love. It just became, it was kind of the beginning of a whole new cycle of, of wealth in our family and how we would distribute that differently among the things we cared about. Oh, that's great. Okay. So you're really de-risking personally. The other equity holders in the business are getting that opportunity to maybe breathe a little bit better and do the things that they really want to do. And I think it ties into, you know, when is the right time personally and professionally to take your chips off the table? In many cases for us, people come to us, should I raise money or should I sell? 
and that's not a binary decision, right? In your case, you were able to sell 40% of the business and achieve the liquidity that you needed. So that's great. So you found a partner that saw the future, let you hold the reins, and, and we're going to bet on April to deliver this, this return, right? Right. That's fantastic. I, I tell young entrepreneurs, I, I have an opportunity to, to visit with them and get connected to them through a variety of different ways. But, you know, I, I always say if, if, if you want to sell because you're, you're burned out, you're tired, you just don't believe really in what you're doing, your heart's just not in it anymore, then sell and take your chips and, and go home. If yeah. you want to sell because you, you know, want to create a, a, a lifestyle, then ask yourself, what's the lowest amount that I can sell to get to the lifestyle that I want, because it's, if it's just, I want something now, you know, what is that something that you want and what's the least you could do to, to get there? Because if you still believe in your company, if you're still all in at, at working hard and delivering on what you've started as an entrepreneur, then wait as long as you possibly can to sort of sell that bigger chunk. I was talking to a young entrepreneur the other day and I said, I, I think the question really comes down to, do you want a lake house or do you want generational wealth? Because that's kind of your decision. If you choose to pull the plug right now, you can go build a really great lake house and you can have some creature comforts in life and you can create some, some stability and de-risk some things for your family. But if you want to create generational wealth for your family, don't do this transaction right now. So yeah. it really comes down to what, and there's nothing wrong with either one of those answers. The, the question is just, what do you want? <laughs> what is it that you're looking for at this time and what matters most to you? And I think, you know, kind of the worst thing an entrepreneur can do is pull the trigger to sell their business too soon. At the first sign of success, you run to sell your business. I think you got to ask yourself, if, if I'm going to sell my business, I'm going to do it at a good multiple I got to leave gas in the tank. I can't sell an empty tank, but mm -hmm. how much gas am I leaving in the tank? And if I've done all this work to fill up this big hundred gallon tank, then maybe I want to stick around and use some of that to get to the next stage of growth. And I still have to leave something even at that later stage for the next buyer to be successful with. But where's my heart in that? And I, and I think there's so many things about when mm -hmm. that are just very personal and very subjective to what you know, the seller wants and, and what they're looking for in their life at this point in time, that it's hard to have a, as you say, it's not a binary discussion. It's hard. There's a lot of factors that come into the conversation. A, a lot of factors, April. I really appreciate that advice. That was very, very clear. I think the thing that I would add, and it's through personal experience, is that, you know, there comes a point where you love what you're doing, but your skill set is maybe not a match for the next level of growth. You have proven to have a skill set from beginning to multiple billion dollar valuations. And that maybe that's not in every entrepreneur. So that's the one thing that I would add. We tend to say, you know, with our sports analogies, that selling a business in the fourth inning after you've put all, you know, good runs on the board, you've got a lead, you've got the heart of the lineup coming up, that's the gas in the tank, right? And you are right. selling the vision of future cash flows. And and now that you're saying that, I'm rethinking, well, you know, if you are that relief pitcher that is unbelievable coming in in the sixth, seventh inning, and you want to play to that point because you're playing to your strengths and you love what you do, then by all means, is there a way to take some chips off the table to de-risk that future risk? 
and stay in the game for, you know, to finish it out. And I wouldn't say quite finish it out because like you said, the buyers have to be buying something with gas in the tank. Yeah, it's it's a very personal, uh, tricky decision. I myself knew, right? I, I didn't believe I had the skill set to build to the to the billion dollar outcome, and so I tended to sell my businesses when I felt like the ROI for myself and every stakeholder was probably at its height. Uh, but again, very very personal decision. So thanks, thank you for sharing that. And I think you know it. It just takes a ton of self awareness um, to yeah. get there. Because, yep. I, you know, it's hard when you've been a, when you've been a successful entrepreneur, sometimes it's hard to look critically at yourself and yep. say, do I really have what it takes? Because you, you're like, well, I got it here. It's, you know, I, I did this. I, I think I can do that. But it takes a lot of really soul searching, not only about what you want to do, what you're willing to do to get to that place, but really yep. what what do you have the capability to do? And I think frequently entrepreneurs you know, drink a little too much of their own Kool-Aid sometimes and they, yep. they fail to see their own weaknesses. And so it's it's also as you think about selling a business, you gotta be really, really honest with yourself. <laughs> you don't have yes. to tell anybody yeah. else, but you gotta be really, really honest with yourself about do I really believe I can do this? And do I believe yeah. the market is in a position for me to be successful doing it um, with the dynamics that are out there, or do I need to pass this off to somebody that has deeper experience, deeper skills? just a more scalable model, because that's, that's the other thing I think entrepreneurs so often don't build scalable models. Like they're really good at this level, Mm -hmm. but they really won't work at two (laughs) X this level. And, you know, trying to figure out, you know, where am I in my ability to really evolve the model to address the scale that's coming. And so those are some of those self-awareness questions you got to really dig deep on. It, yeah, I, w- I would agree that like maybe we all have a different level of of how introspective we can be. I've found to be very introspective and maybe you know not not as confident in that next step. And I tend to surround myself with people that have been there, right, to be able to see what it really takes. And you know, on on the venture we're we're building today, what I ended up doing is getting a partner who has built that billion dollar company before, right? So already been there to kind of fill in. And how do you create scalable operations? I mean, I love that conversation. Maybe it's for a different podcast, but could you answer one question? Since you've got the operating company, right? And private equity group that's come in and bought this 40% is, is still allowing you to run a separate business while betting on your ability to grow the technology side of the house. Um, how, did, how did that work? Yeah. So, uh, you know, kind of missing a few steps in the middle there, but so the operating company, uh, started that in 1998 and brought in the first private equity partner there in 2004. Um, okay. So I had the tech, I had the tech business. The the buyer who came in in 2004 said, "No, way too early, way too early stage. I don't want that." So I had a private equity investor from 04 to 07 in the operating business. Uh, things went really well. Uh, Multi X return on their investment. They said it's time for us to flip out. Brought in a new investor in 07, a new private equity investor. They stayed the investor in the operating business until 2014, and it was actually them. And at, at the time, they said, you know, in 2007 when they came in, again, we're not interested in this, you know, technology business that's just barely broken even on a cash flow basis for the first time in 2007. But by the time 2011 came along, they had not only seen what it was happening in that tech business, but as one of the largest customers of the particular software we were building in the operating business, they saw the impact that it had. So they were the the ones who said in 2011, hey, we'd like to now buy in to the tech business. 
Um, and so had the same partner there for a period from 2011 to 2013 in the tech business, same partner that I had on the operating side, kind of a different division, but at the same private equity firm. Oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'll jump ahead to really where you went. You had multiple opportunities to take on more partners, get more liquidity, and you're essentially, you're betting on yourself, right? You're keeping a little bit of equity as the business grows. Is there a culmination to all of this when you ultimately say, you know, it, it, it's time to time to sell it all? Yeah, exactly. So let's take the operating business sort of as the first one. So 20... 14, the home health industry kind of went through a tough period um, from a regulatory and reimbursement perspective from 2010 to 2013. And then there was a little bit of relieving in some of the rates in 2013. And the business began to really take off and grow again after having a couple of years of sort of flat earnings. All of a sudden, 2013 comes along, it takes off. We have a great 13 and 14. And our private equity partners, who had been amazing partners because they had stayed with us for seven years, that doesn't happen very often right. in the private equity world. The last three of which, you know, from 10 to, to 13 had been tough years. And so often when you find a partner, you know, as soon as things kind of start to slow down, they want out. Our partners were great to say, hey, we still believe in you. We still believe in the industry. We still believe in the business. This is just a cycle. We'll outlast it. And in fact, they did. And so uh, December of 2014, they said, okay, now, now, now it's time. It's been seven years. The business is back on the up, uh, upswing. Um, we think now's the time to get out. And so in 2014, again, sold the, the operating business, this time to a public company. So when we kind of looked at how much gas was left in the tank, we looked at my plans for the long haul, seemed like that was uh, that was the right decision in 2014. So again, I rolled over, I kept 20% of the company. So even though I sold to a strategic buyer, um, I was playing on so much house money by that time, uh, but it seemed like, yeah, let's let's try this. And we had a defined mechanism for how I could sell. I didn't own shares in the public company. I still okay. own shares in just our division. Um, within the public company, which was, I, I didn't want shares in the public company. I'd been down that road <laughs> before. And so I was able to keep a minority equity interest in just my division of the business and then have a defined mechanism for how I would sell that down. And so did that in December of 2014 and then sold it down in bites starting in 2018, sold a chunk in 18, 19, 20, and then sold my final, uh, final chunk in summer of 20, right, right before the pandemic started. So yeah, so had, had that opportunity. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we, we had the same private equity investor come in in 2011 in the tech business. Mm -hmm. And we sold uh, all of our, their interest. Plus I sold another 40, you know, down, sold mine down to 20% as well of the tech business and became partners with Hearst Corporation. Yeah. Not technically a strategic buyer, not technically a, uh, a private equity firm, really a conglomerate of companies. So mm -hmm. it was kind of the, the best of both worlds because it gave us a long-term future home, but it did so in such a way that really let us still be run as, a, as an individual portfolio company. And so did that in 2016. I stayed on as CEO until December of 19 and then still remain as chairman of the board uh, today, even though I've now sold down all of my, uh, my equity in that business as well. So it's been a fun ride. And like I say, when you take, you talk about taking multiple bites out of the apple, I, I think I'm a winner at that. <laughs> I've been able to figure out how to do that multiple times. It's, it's, um, it's amazing, right? So I, I feel like you really learned from the first one, right? That didn't go in your favor. And, and I don't know if it's 
you know, you chose the right partners or you surrounded yourself with the right advice or, you know, fool me once, right? <laughs> you, you're never going to let that happen again. But, you know, what's, what's your biggest takeaway? You clearly learned to how to play this game incredibly well. And this, this podcast is really about sharing that advice. And, and you've got, you know, just a plethora of it. What would you, what are, what are the big takeaways that you would want to share? Well, I, I think it kind of comes back to something I said earlier, which is I, I love making money. I love building businesses that are successful, that allow you to kind of create that generational wealth, but it's just never been the reason. And mm-hmm. um, that's easy to say when you're in a situation like mine, but that's really the truth that I've never built a business to say, oh, if I could do this by this date, I could sell it for that. It's always just mm-hmm. been, this is a business that I love. And I really do feel like for me, you know, God just kept opening these doors that didn't make sense, bringing me into areas I didn't have experience, exposing me to things I didn't have specific knowledge of. But he just kept equipping me with these opportunities and then giving me these abilities to be successful with it. And I think it's because I always loved it and I was always doing it for the right reason. And I, I am an accountant and I'm a, I'm a girl who loves numbers and finances. So I, I definitely wanted to do it successfully financially along the way. But at the end wasn't to be financially successful. The end was to be exceptional at the business, whether that mm-hmm. was the tech business or the service delivery business. It, it was If I could be successful and, and really be exceptional at that, the financial thing was going to take care of itself. And so, you know, I think to entrepreneurs, I say, you know, sure, we all want to be profitable. We all want to have a successful exit. But at the same time, the best way to get to that successful exit is to find the thing that you are so passionate about that it doesn't feel like work. And I, I think that was that was it for me is finding that thing that just didn't feel like work. <laughs> it felt like yeah. the thing that I love to wake up and do and the thing I love to go to bed still thinking about doing. <laughs> How could I do it better tomorrow? So when you find that passion, then the reward of the financial success becomes, you know, a byproduct of how passionate you are about what you're doing. It is such a great lesson. And, and I agree with you. It is, it sounds when you hear it, oh, that's easy for that person to say, right? They have that kind of financial cushion. And so we tend to prioritize that as entrepreneurs. But I can also speak from experience. What we are doing today was just born out of passion of how to help our fellow founders because the exit, those liquidity events, they're really black boxes. They, most people don't get to do that as many times as you have, right? Mm-hmm. So you've accumulated a lot of that knowledge and we certainly have through transaction after transaction. And we've just figured out a better way to do this and helping founders, giving back to founders is really like the central component of what drives us every single day. And to be able to say that, you're, it's exactly right. It's not work, right? You we're just feel like we're giving back and helping. So uh, very, very much resonates uh, with me. I think the other lesson really from, from day one for you is knowing your buyer, right? So you, I, I'm curious, like in these neck, these subsequent transactions, you, you had one private equity firm that you knew really well. They knew you really well from previous experience. And so you allow them into the technology side of the business. That one seems obvious. But, you know, getting in bed initially, were you having really good advice or you're doing due diligence differently? 
Yeah. So the first first transaction after the the one that didn't go so well was 2004 when we brought private equity into the operating business. So I mentioned, you know, we we did some acquisitions at a really low multiple. Things were going great. Then we kind of leaned into organic growth. By the time 2004 came along, we had done a lot on the organic growth front, but we just needed to uh, to, to do more acquisitions if we were going to really grow and scale the business to the size we thought it could be, and that that we wanted to to make an impact at that bigger level. And so we. Really Really, at that point in time, we went out and started searching for a partner at that point who could bring not just an exit to us, but capital yep. into the business to grow, which at that time it was more about putting capital in the business than it was taking capital out. And so, you know, we uh, we did hire a banker at that point and we, we ran a process. By then, I knew a lot more than I had known the first go around in, uh, in 1996. And so we were able to, uh, we were able to, you know, find that great partner. And we had a, a, an exceptional private equity partnership from 2004 to 2007. It was relatively short-lived, not out of any failure, frankly, out of a lot of success. Um, mm-hmm. We just created a really big return for them. And uh, and when you have a smaller partner, it's hard not to capitalize on that return <laughs> when it presents yes. itself. So we had a great relationship. As a matter of fact, I still talk to that guy on a, on a fairly regular basis that was our lead partner there. So it was a great uh, transaction, a win for everybody, and it just opened the door to the next relationship. And you know, in 2007, when we did that, we were, it was sort of a little bit unique at that point in time for one private equity uh, company to buy from another private equity company. That what didn't happen nearly as much back then as it does today. Um, mm-hmm. And so it was a little bit rare, but we, we knew we really liked the structure of that relationship. We liked the autonomy that it gave us. Uh, we continued as a team to really believe in ourselves and that we had a lot more ability to continue to grow and expand the business than we had realized to date. Um, and so it was great to, to make that trans- transition from one private equity partner to the next. That turned out to be a great, great relationship. So before we go into our overtime questions, I'd love to hit on what, what you're doing today. Well, so I'm, uh, I'm, I failed at one thing in my life and that was retirement. <laughs> so in 2000, uh, 2021, yeah. I, uh, I decided after having sold the, the last tranches of equity to the public uh, company that we had sold the operating business to, that it was probably time for me to, to step away. I stayed for six years after we did that initial transaction and it was successful for all parties, but things were just starting to move in a different direction. It just didn't feel like it was the right decision. I thought it was probably time to retire. I was 30 years in the industry and I thought that was where life would lead me. So I left there in June of 2021, spent a year playing golf and traveling and enjoying a little bit of downtime with our family. But I just kept feeling unfulfilled by that. My, uh, my golf handicap got better. Things, uh, things were fun, but it just didn't bring that fulfillment that I wanted. And so in August of uh, 22, I came back. I, had a, I only had only a one-year non-compete from that transaction. And so uh, my non-compete ended in June. And in August, I uh, decided I was going to start another home health and hospice business. So I came back into the industry and I'm building a company called Vital Caring Group. Right now, we're up to uh, 65 locations uh, across five states already and about 200, a little over $200 million in revenue. So we're looking to build another billion-dollar business and really excited to, uh, to start over. So when I when I say it's not about the money, I think that's probably the best proof point because I, I, I could have stayed retired and, and just mm-hmm. invested in other people's businesses, but I just love this. <laughs> I love what I love what we do. I love 
I love the challenge of it. I love the opportunity to serve people. And so I, uh, I'm excited to be back at it and uh, see what we can build, see if I can do, see if I can have a fourth uh, success in the home health and hospice industry. Uh, April, that's so inspirational. This is just fantastic. Um, thank you. Let's uh, let's jump into kind of the overtime questions. So you've had multiple exits, and it really seems like your husband was the one you'd go and say, "Can I go do this?" And he was the encouraging one. So maybe it's pretty obvious. But who did you first call when you inked the first deal, and then the second and the third? Was uh, was that pretty consistent of who you were talking to? Yeah. So Mark's been a, a great partner along the way. Uh, as a matter of fact, in 2006, when things were going kind of sideways in the technology business, and we were pouring all this all this money down, I finally said, you know what I really need is a great salesperson to come help me sell more of this product in the marketplace. Why don't you quit your job and come do that? And so uh, in 2006, he left his job as an institutional equity stockbroker, uh, had his own broker-dealer firm after spending a career at, uh, at Dane Rauscher, uh, started his own broker-dealer firm in 2004, and then uh, and then in 2006 ended up selling off his par- his part of the partnership and coming to work leading the sales effort for the technology business. So he was my uh, my partner at Home Care Home Base uh, literally day in and day out on that transaction and helped us really you know solidify our foundation as the leading uh, technology solution for the home health and hospice market. He stayed uh, working in that till 2015, a couple of years after the initial uh, sell to a strategic buyer there, and and uh, and and he's better at retirement than I am. He he stuck with it, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, we had a we had a good run there together for about uh, nine years, working together uh, day in and day out, uh, building that business. Oh, that's fantastic! Uh, something for your kids to look back on. That's just going to be amazing. <laughs> uh, so, so how did you reward yourself each time? Any like special purchase or vacation? What did you do? Not only with family, but maybe employees as well. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, on the on the personal front, we we have a, a, a wonderful family: a daughter, twenty seven, son, twenty five, and a daughter, twenty two. And um, you know, two thousand seven was really sort of the first year that we had put together enough capital to to kind of buy that getaway place, and and we bought a little small condo and. Cabo San Lucas that over the years turned into a bigger condo and then a house and, and kept kept That's growing great. as the successes grow. But love to be together with our family and uh, especially now that they're all grown. I found if you if you have homes in really great places, they'll continue to come to visit you. <laughs> no, <laughs> no matter no matter how old they are, they'll they'll show up. So we we've loved that. We've got to got to uh, spend some time in the winter in Cabo San Lucas and we have a summer home up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, um, which is a long way from here, but a beautiful uh, area and setting. So I feel like our family and our kids have sort of grown up in those places. And uh, those are places that we love being together. So those are kind of our, our big purchases. But, you know, one of the biggest joys of entrepreneurship is being able to help your team members out. And so in, in each of our transactions, we were able to provide equity to our management team and create, you know, you know, in some cases, generational wealth for their families. And so that has just been such a joy to be able to have team members who you've been able to make sort of life-changing impacts in their finances. So we've loved doing that. But but really, in addition to the, the toys, which I tell folks all the time, the toys are great. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I love fun toys as much as anybody, more than most probably, actually. <laughs> but um, 
but what we've really loved is is being really engaged in important philanthropy in areas that we really we really love for for us our kind of our biggest single thing is our alma mater my husband and I both attended Abilene Christian University and uh, I've served there as a board of trustees member for 25 years now and have yeah. been the chairman of the board since 2018 but that's a that's a place we've reinvested into heavily and that we've loved sort of sharing our success back with our alma mater that's great. All right. So final question. Is there one person that you would like to thank for all your kind of personal and professional success? Yeah. You know, everybody kind of says their parents, my, both my parents were small business owners. They, they literally uh, never had more than two or three employees a piece in their businesses. And for many years, I was one of those two or three employees. As I was in high school, I did the accounting for both of those small businesses because my dad was an accountant by training and he, he taught me uh, debits and credits from a young age. And so I was the, the summer accountant who would come on. But you know what I learned from my parents was not so much how to run a billion dollar business, but what I learned from them was, was hard work and, and how important it was to be passionate about what you do to really lean in um, from an effort perspective. You don't have to be the smartest kid on the block. You just need to outwork the kid who is. <laughs> and that's kind mm. of uh, one of the philosophies that I've hopefully passed down to my children. And uh, and then I just watched them care about things that mattered. And, and even, even in the days when they were small business owners, even when things were tough economically, you know, they never stopped um, supporting charities that they believed in, supporting works that they thought were meaningful. And so I think uh, they, they deserve a lot of the credit. Oh, that's fantastic. April, thank you for doing this. For me, all I can think of is what's the address in Cabo so we can play golf together. <laughs> but, indeed, indeed. But, but the lessons here are are fantastic. I think we could go on for several more hours. Uh, really inspirational story. And I appreciate you sharing it with all of us. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.